Affection produces happiness if, and only if, there is common sense and give and take and decency. In other words, only if something more and other than affection is added. If we try to live by affection alone, affection will go bad on us. This is Minds with Jack, Season 5, Episode 9, The Four Loves, Chapter 3, Affection, Part 3. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and myself, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through the four loves, the book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. But before we dive into this wonderful chapter, gentlemen, it's been over a week since we've chatted how have you lovely ladies been? <laughs> well, my lovely lady is doing fine. I'm not nearly so lovely and, um, you know, the rest of that. But doing well back in Florida. Uh, flew back in over the weekend. And so now back here for the holiday and finishing up final exams. So lots of projects. Uh, the wonderful part, I was chatting with Brittany White today. I got to use uh, Diana Glyer's Bandersnatch. Um, as a, a role model for for collaboration in parish administration, so I got to write about her book for most of my final. So just killing things off and turning to um, to Northwind studies and plowing forward. How about you, Matt? I would never ever dream of selecting or determining which were favorite interviews that I have done um, because you know that just wouldn't be right. Uh, but I loved Diana Glyer's interview. She's uh, she's amazing. And the best thing to see with her is when she teaches. She is a born teacher. And it's just, it's like, um, it's like seeing Shakespeare in the globe. But no, in terms of, you know, how I've been, I'm still out here in Arizona. And I was just chatting with a friend actually the other day and just talking about, he was asking you how have everything been going. Obviously it's a unexpected life shift for a brief period. And you have a number of things that can sometimes external factors that you really can't control that can come down on you pretty quickly. And I was like, you know, it's been really, there's definitely been some ups and downs, some struggles, but it's one of those where when you're in those moments, it's really beautiful when you see God's grace and you see the way he's working. Even if you just see the way he's working and it's like the worst of circumstances, just that thought and knowledge and belief really develops a lot of strength. It's like the mustard seed that just grows into something. It doesn't take much. And you're like, yeah, that was his hand. And so it's been, it's actually been going well. And I've just been trying to take advantage of Arizona while I'm here and embracing it as much as possible. Uh, Dave is making sure he reminds me of this pastor individual that you had mentioned, Andrew, that I... Bruce Johnson, Scottsdale Presbyterian Church. It went in one year and out the other. And then I was really confused when David sent me it because I have a very dear friend from my hometown with that same name. Uh, and so I was like, and he's like a mentor more or less. I was like, who, who is David talking about? This is really confusing right now. I think the next time we do a common room, I'm going to talk to you about the getting stuff done methodology. And it's basically how you manage stuff. You manage your email, you get things done. Uh, I, th I think that'd be a really, really productive thing to do. 
I'm going to be honest, David, I've read the book and I've used the whole uh, clarify something to four different stages you put it into and tried that. Reflect, clarify, organize, or something. And that is actually the format I use with my Microsoft OneNote because uh, I have like four columns. It still doesn't work, my friend. <laughs> it still doesn't work. You do still actually have to do stuff. You realize that, right? Well, my thing is, it's, I talked, I even say this to all of my, the people that have worked under me, the same thing with the not-for-profit now with the new employee with my company. It's like my biggest blessing and my biggest curse. I'm insanely good at picking the two things that really actually matter to the most meaningful and diving into those insanely well and then neglecting every other piece of things. And once in a while it bites me. So like with work, I forgot to file certain filings and it's cost me like $500 or something because it was a late fee. And I'm like, oh shoot, that really sucked. <laughs> um, but rarely does it get me in trouble. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, we will talk about this come the next common room. One thing that I wanted to do was to share a couple of iTunes reviews that we'd had recently. Cause I, I don't want them to all build up and then just talk about them at the end of the season. So we had a lovely review from Deadwood007. It says, Great job, gentlemen. Between this podcast and Pints with Justin, I have found my people. I feel like I'm home with people like me talking about things I love the most. Oh, wonderful. Mm. And we had another one from, I'm going to pronounce it, Dean Chili. I really wish iTunes would allow people to choose a, a, an actual display name rather than just uh, have, it, have a username all jammed together. Anyway, uh, he wrote, I'm very impressed with the knowledge of this podcast trio, and I'm grateful to be able to enjoy it. One minor note, but something that I really appreciate, is that when you're listening to an episode, they even change the image based on what segment of the show they are on or what they are discussing. I don't listen to any other podcasts that do this, and it's a really nice touch. I want to say thank you for noticing that, because it's one of my favorite things about our podcast as well. I do it using a piece of software called Forecast. It doesn't actually work on every single podcasting platform, but it will on Apple, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and, and a few others. Oh, that's lovely. Well, let's push things on. What's everyone drinking today? What are you drinking today, David? Well, I'm holding my breath and going back into Matt's brown bag of random scotches that he sent us, <laughs> and I am drinking Glen Scotia Distillery Single Malt, which I couldn't find a whole lot about online, which does worry me a little. That would be Scotia, um, being from the colonies. So, ah, like Nova Scotia. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Matt, what about you? You know, I actually did acquire something. Uh, I did not acquire scotch, but uh, I acquired a uh, cocktail, Bacardi Coke. So I thought I'd pour, pour myself just a, a little miniature cocktail. Oh. Markets are closed and I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, coming down to Florida, packing my bags, I've got... The semester to finish up, the doctorate to work on, my canonicals, which is my big final priest exams uh, to study for. We didn't have a spare inch in my luggage, and so I came down with absolutely zero scotch. And so I am here scotchless. Uh, I need to make a run to the to the to the Bev store because they do have some good old speckled hen. I might stock up on some English beer. So um, for the first time in a while, I've been trying to avoid coffee in the morning. Um, and but I'm having a cup of Starbucks holiday blend in a in a holiday mug that my wife bought for me. So in that case, cheers. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Well, David, recap us up. Yeah, it's recap time. So in the introduction, Lewis describes need love, gift love, 
the different kinds of nearness to God, and gives us his maxim, that love, when it becomes a god, becomes a demon. That was chapter one. In the second chapter, we analyzed pleasures and discovered a third kind of love, appreciative love, and we looked at patriotism and the love of nature. Then, at the beginning of the month, we began chapter three, and we began discussing affection, or storky in Greek, a humble love which just requires an object to be familiar. Then last week, we heard about some of the ways in which it can go wrong, such as confusing it with charity, and we focus on the degradations of the need-love element of affection, being entitled to affection, misunderstanding its informality, uh, how it becomes ravenous and how it freaks out when the familiar changes. Anything to add? Yeah, I, I, I'm seeing currently affection, at least, and I don't know if this will play out for all of the loves, very much in a similar vein of Lewis that the greatest vices can become the greatest virtues. And with affection, he starts that first part with that idea of what a gift it almost it is, what a grace it is. I probably shouldn't use the word gift in this case. It's confusing. What a grace it is in the sense that because the familiar can breed affection, it almost can make other loves more easy. I see David eyeing the scotch right now like, oh, this isn't that good. Another blunder from a British uh, scotch block place. It's actually not too bad. It's not too bad. Sorry, Karen. No, yeah. So it, just that idea that in the beginning of, of this section where we were talking about how it really is a grace, it helps us and leads us. It's almost like a gateway love into some of the other ones. It can make them easier. And then we quickly switch to last week and this week of the ways it goes wrong. And so we're seeing that same concept. It can be really great, but it can be abused. And that's just a very, I guess I want to point out that's a very central Lewis theme. And sure enough, it seems to be structured that way so far. Let's start with the almost the virtue of it. And then let's turn to the vice of it. And as we're going to see at the end of this, when you infuse it with something, it really helps prevent it from going to the vice side of things or the, the negative side of things. You mean when something is on its own, it tends to grow selfish, and when it <laughs> turns towards the other, it uh, it it grows and improves. Um, wow, that's exactly it. Gosh, I would never have expected that from C.S. Lewis. Um, oh my goodness! Wanted to mention your distinction between a gift and a grace, Matt. Um, the word for gift in in um, don't tell me it's grace. Yeah, it's char char charism. Um, so yeah, there, there's a, there's a relationship between the two, but I, I also think that, uh, Storgi becomes this kind of ravenous entitled love because it's the most natural. And remember, these are the three natural loves, um, Storgi, Eros, and Philia. But I think that the ravenousness of it kind of point to its biological nature. I, I, we get hungry for it almost physically. And that's partly because of, of it's part of our rearing. The highest doesn't stand without the lowest. And so as lofty as the loves can be, they do have, um, I think, the family piece of it, the familiarity, the actual naturalness of it. Um, these, are, these are things that need, that beg for resurrection. But to quote MacDonald in The Great Divorce, but it was killed first. You must remember that. Oh, yeah. I like he said that, David, because I was just going to point out his beg for resurrection, but what comes before the resurrection, the crucifixion. And so you guys just tied that up. Boom. Well done, guys. I love it. <laughs> okay. So on to my 100-word summary for this last part of chapter three. In the final section of chapter three, Lewis explains how the gift-love elements of affection can go wrong. He tells the story of the legendary Mrs. Fidget illustrating how we can force others to remain dependent upon us or focus our affections on a pet. 
Jack says that we are all tempted to these kinds of distortions simply by being a member of the fallen human race. He concludes by saying something needs to be added to affection in order to keep it in line and to prevent it from deteriorating into the demonic. Okay, so to the text itself. Last week, we began looking at the dangers of affection, how it goes wrong, and we focused on the dangers which come from the need-love dimension of affection. And today we're going to continue looking at those problems, but this time due to the gift-love element within affection. And today's opening section is just hilarious. <laughs> In three of my favorite paragraphs of this entire book, Lewis tells us the story of Mrs. Fidget, the mother who lived for her family, and by doing so, terrorized them. <laughs> when she dies, everybody begins to flourish, even the dog who is now free to go and pee on the lampposts in the street. Jack ends that section with the line, the vicar says Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. What's quite certain is that her family are. So what are we supposed to make of Mrs. Fidget? I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. I don't know if, if we're necessarily supposed to make anything specific other than it's a really uh, specific <laughs> example of the ways that it can go wrong of a person who essentially... How though? What is the problem with all of her loving actions? Because she does lots of things. She does the washing, hot lunches, stays up to welcome you, making stuff. What's wrong with that? Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only reason I was hesitating and struggling was because I was about to jump way forward to answer a bunch of stuff we're probably going to get to. But probably the short way to keep it right now as we build into this is it's not really truly love. There's a selfishness to this. Uh, and so it's almost like a misclassification of it. She thinks it's love from her perspective. It's love, but it's really like a weaponized love for her own selfish gain. And so I probably just wouldn't even call it a genuine love. Is And we're going to see in this chapter, which I'm really excited for, a litmus test for how do you tell what's more genuine love versus deprivation of love almost. Well, and I think that it comes back once again to the motive. And so much can be clarified by just examining the motive. And remember that the opposite of love is self, right? Not hatred, um, but selfishness. And um, she's doing all of these things. She's living for her family, but nobody asked her to do that. Um, and she reminds me, of course, of Pam um, in, in uh, The Great Divorce, but she also reminds me of the woman who kept pressing her husband to work longer hours so that they could get a nicer house so that he could leave aside his shabby friends and she spills you know ink all over his you know little writing project that he ends up giving up it's selfishness she doesn't move to a new house because they need a new larger house she does it because she wants to be thought better of and so the kind of key motivation of why am I doing these loving actions? And any of us who are in relationship know that we could do very loving things with very hard and bitter hearts. And, um, and that's kind of like what Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. It's not a gift. Um, this is not at all gift love. This is need love for appreciative love pushing her to do all of these things. And in some ways that just absolutely, I think, invalidates, you know, what she's doing. I would say it's need love for gift love. She needs to give. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, if, if she isn't doing all of these things, then, then, then that's going to hurt her. Right. Well, and I mean, she's just one aching need. She needs to give, she needs to be needed, she needs to be appreciated, um, mm -hmm. but she can't see past herself. Uh, and say, hey, what would you like? 
And, <laughs> and that's a difficult question. And of course, in all of this, it, it reminds a little bit of, of Orwell, you know, who lived her whole life for Psyche, but um, she would drag Psyche to the same hell that Pam would, would drag Michael to. And there's also an echo of Minto and also even Lois's dad, that reference to providing hot meals, even when they didn't want one, that there's an echo of that from Surprised by Joy. Now, when I was doing the graphics for today's episode, I tried to think, how can I, how can I represent Mrs. Fidget? Who is the classic Mrs. Fidget? And the best person I could come up with was Marie from Everybody Loves Raymond. You had slightly too long of a pause there, David. <laughs> the best thing I could think of was Marie. <laughs> and my first thought was, your wife? <laughs> no, not at all. My wife is a delight. <laughs> I've met your wife. She's absolutely fantastic. I agree. But that little second, I was like, where's he going with this? I think you're reading too much into that. Uh, now, Lewis says that it's easy to see how the maternal instinct in particular can degenerate into something like Mrs. Fidget. And he reminds us of the paradox that we discussed in the first week on this chapter, how affection is a, is a gift love, but one that needs to give and therefore needs to be needed. But the thing is, the goal in giving should be to ultimately bring the recipient to the point at which the gift is no longer needed. Jack says, we feed children in order they may soon be able to feed themselves. We teach them in order so that they may soon not need our teaching. Gift love must work towards its own abdication. We must aim to make ourselves superfluous. But then with Mrs. Fidget, with this twisted form of affection, anything that tries to alter the status quo... Well, then the ravenous need to be needed will gratify itself either by keeping its objects needy or by inventing for them imaginary needs. It will do this all the more ruthlessly because it thinks that it is a gift love and therefore regards itself as unselfish. I love this because I love litmus tests. And it's been a little bit since we've gotten one of these. This was in Mere Christianity pretty significantly. He provided a litmus test for pride. If you remember, he goes, if you celebrate someone's successes the same way you would celebrate your own or actually vice versa, uh, then you're not prideful. But if if you're only doing it because you did it, there's there's pride there. And this is very similar. It's like if you if you are giving to them with the idea that it doesn't matter if it's coming from you or coming from someone else, but they're they're just being freed from where they are and elevated to another level, then it's genuine gift love. And so I I, I think that was just a really simple, beautiful way of allowing yourself, do I want the good for the person for the sake of the person and not for my own sake in any way, shape, or form? It's almost like the last four chapters of Till We Have Faces, where Orwell says, I did not want her to have any good that I did not give her. I mean, you can clearly see that this was embodying what Lewis is doing, and then he he writes it out. Um, and that's why I think that the maxim that we talk about in the recap, not love becomes a god or becomes a demon when it becomes a god, but I think the negative is perhaps more helpful as a way forward, especially for us in our own loves. It's something that we need to do. It's a kind of abnegation that we need to adopt. Love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. And so what we should constantly be doing is dethroning ourselves, right? Um, not to the point of, of helpless, you know, self, self-denial and everything. You know, St. Paul doesn't say, don't look to your own interests. He says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so... We need to continually be dethroning the God of our own selfish motives when we love, 
You know, would I be just as happy if somebody else gave them that wonderful thing? Or do I really secretly want to be noticed? Or maybe not even so secretly. And so I think that the way that we love and looking at our motives often, oftentimes tells us where we need to be in the dethronement um, kind of the process. And once we dethrone, we undeify. And we, like Chesterton said, when the real God comes, the, the, the half gods can take their proper place. And what a marvelous thing when the affections are all where they should be because we have God at the center and self kind of last, right? He must increase and I must decrease. And this is part of why I love this book so much. I mean, it goes to the core of how I live every day in all of my relationships and even in my own mind. So Andrew, is it bad that I want us to be the number one C.S. Lewis podcast? Pride, C.S. Lewis says, is not wanting to have things. It's wanting to have more than anyone else. Right? <laughs> and so, so that's a yes. <laughs> if you want to be the number one podcast because you want to be more popular than everybody else, yeah, it's terrible. Um, and oh, I urge you to repent. <laughs> but if you want to be the number one podcast because we can bring Lewis's wisdom and through Lewis, God's good news of the kingdom to more people. You know, yes, but then we would also delight that all of the Lewis podcasts were flourishing or all of the, the podcasts that, that helped anybody towards the good news of, of the love of God. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, ambition just there. Just so and- much as they flourished slightly less than us. <laughs> okay, so that's just, just a little kidding. bit of pride. And, you know, <laughs> Screwtape's got an eternity to keep working on you with that. So, you know, you just keep giving that a try and let us know how that goes. <laughs> do you do spiritual direction, Andrew? <laughs> I'm going to be a priest, brother. <laughs> I could use it. <laughs> could we all? And as a little bit of self-promotion, check out pinesofjack.com because I recently put up a post outlining all of the other CSOS podcasts that are out there. And maybe saying why we're better than they are. Anyway, moving on. Uh, it <laughs> I saw be, that. I didn't see us on the list, David. <laughs> it would be very easy to think that Lewis is having a go at mothers. But he says that any relationship based on affection can fall into the same sort of trap. And he gives the example of the mentor-mentee relationship from Jane Austen's Emma. He says, Emma intends that Harriet Smith should have a happy life, but only the sort of happy life which Emma herself has planned for her. And for those that are unfamiliar with the book, Emma thinks of herself as a matchmaker and determines to have Harriet Smith married. But when Harriet receives an offer of marriage, Emma convinces her to turn him down because it's not the man that Emma wants for her. Orwell. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't think she wants a uh, psyche to have anybody, but yeah. Time for another drink. Time for another drink. <laughs> hey, this is this is Lewis sponsoring the the drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> well, and don't teachers have uh, same the same kind of temptation, David? Yeah, and he gives the example of a Doctor Quartz, uh, this teacher who pours himself into his students. He's greatly loved, but he always eventually rejects his students when they reach the point when they can even respectfully challenge him. And when I read that, I actually thought of the part in The Most Reluctant Convert, where we have a counterexample to that, a healthy teacher-pupil relationship between Jack and the Great Knock. Kirkpatrick, uh, he, he, he relishes the fact that Lewis is pushing back on him. Well, and Lewis adopted that kind of relationship with his own students. I mean, he called himself a man who was hungry for rational opposition. And he loved, I think... Let's see. I don't know if I have any firsthand 
quote to back this up, but I, th- I think that Lewis relished when his students could win a point from him. Um, I think he relished to be wrong or to be corrected. And that's part of why he let himself in for such kind of what Diana Glyer calls opposers um, in Bandersnatch. These are uh, people who say, no, not like this. And pressures, hey, you can you know get this done. He wanted not to just be in him in his own self. He wanted to be pulled out of himself, and that goes back to experiment and criticism, where he says, "My own eyes are not enough for me. I must see through other eyes." And he talks later on in friendship about the second friend who likes all the right things in all the wrong ways, and we'll get to that in due course. But but Lewis was, I think, masterful at kind of focusing on how he needed to be pulled out of himself. And we we read it in, in, in our reading earlier about this other. And remember, other is one of these keywords to conjure with. Lewis is constantly wanting to be himself and go beyond himself. And ultimately, that's a pose of where we are with Christ, right? We must, we want to, you know, from glory to glory, be changed, being, be, uh, changed into his image. And this is, I think, part of what Walter meant when Lewis was thoroughly converted. He was constantly kind of wearing this theme down. And I think that he, as a teacher, loved it when uh, he could be surpassed by his students if they, were, if they were doing well. Back when we were reading chapter two, Likings and Loves for the Subhuman, Lewis said that he was going to delay talking about animals until this chapter. And we did speak about it a little bit in part one, where we spoke about affection being between cats and dogs. But as we come to the last part of this chapter, Lewis speaks about how pets can become an outlet for distorted gift love uh, in affection. And we have this example of Mrs. Fidget. She apparently terrorized the dog as well. Now, I know that we mentioned this before, but was Lewis an animal person? Oh my goodness. He loved both dogs and cats. Um, in fact, um, I think it's Warney in his memoir, in his kind of scathing review of how much time Minto took of, of Jack's. Um, and Warney himself talks about the, the number of hours that he spent. He, I think he counted up how many hours he spent walking Minto's various dogs. Um, and Lewis could probably have written two or three more books if he hadn't done all that dog walking. But uh, but he loved animals, um, and there were always animals in the house. He loved dogs and cats um, equally. Walter was fond of telling this story of walking with Lewis. He was in the kitchen, and uh, Mrs. Miller, the housekeeper, said um, that old Tom, the mouser, the cat, uh, had lost his teeth. And she said, well, Mr. Jack, shouldn't we put him down? And um, Jack said, oh, put him down? No, of course we can't do that. He's a pensioner. Now, David, explain to us what a pensioner is. It's basically when you get old and you start drawing on your pension. You've paid into it all of your life. You now start to draw money from it. And this uh, this, uh, basically sustains you in your dotage. And I think that that's especially true of those with military service. So he had served so well that now he's a pensioner. And so he made Mrs. Miller three times a week cook fish and debone it so that um, old Tom could gum his meals. Um, and so Walter tells the story of walking down Kiln Lane with Lewis and seeing old Tom on the fence. And Jack nudged Walter and he said, pensioner. He certainly embraced both dogs and cats. And in this chapter, he says that pets can be a bridge into nature, that we actually have this need to, to do that. Uh, but also that relationships with animals can become distorted due to affection's gift love. He says, this terrible need to be needed often finds its outlet in pampering an animal. 
You can keep it all its life in need of you. You can keep it permanently infantile, reducing it to permanent invalidism. Cut it off from all genuine animal well-being, and compensate for this by creating needs for countless little indulgences, which only you can grant. And he says that there's a real advantage to doing this. What is it? First, there's a couple quick thoughts I have with this. First, before answering that, it's interesting. I felt like as I was reading this, he could have used this equally for need love. And it's the need love side of affection. Let me clarify that a little more specifically. He's using it here for gift love side, uh, side where you almost like overly indulge, overly spoil the dog. But there, I've seen people who get dogs for the need for affection because they're not getting in the human side. And now that somewhat segues to answering your question, there's no risk with the dogs. You know, human human interaction in general, human relationships really require they're messy. You have two people coming together and there's hurts and wounds that can come from them. And if you want the joy that comes with the relationship, you've got to be willing to invest the time and the emotional energy and the vulnerability and risk the pain as well. And I feel like with dogs, you kind of mute the pain a little bit and attempt to try to get as much of the benefit from it. And so, you know, with, with, uh, the human side of things, you, it's easier just to, to steer away from that ultimately. And so I think dogs are honestly an easy escape. Well, and I think that if an animal takes me out of myself, if an animal's need, um, allows me to be gracious and, uh, and, and to, to, to be in relationship, you know, and that's part of what, when I taught high school, we used to read a, a marvelous poem, uh, Jane Kenyon, who wrote the poem, the blue bowl. And I read it to my high school students and it's about burying their cat. And part of what animals do for us, especially as children is generally our pets won't outlive us as children. And so it gives us a chance to experience grief and death as kind of a practice. I mean, if our relationships with animals take us out of ourselves, um, all the better. Lewis also somewhere in print talks about uh, dogs being like the publican, you know, the tax collector. Oh, dear Lord, they feel guilty for everything. It's always all their fault. Oh, dear Lord, forgive me that I am just a dog. And cats stand far off and say, oh, dear Lord, I do give you high thanks that I am not like that, a dog. Right. And so even the personalities of dogs and cats can remind us that other personalities in God's good creation exist and that the world does certainly not revolve around ourselves. Well, Lewis says in the text that the most downtrodden human driven too far may one day turn and blurt out the terrible truth. Animals can't speak. This is the great advantage of uh, abusing an animal rather than a person. It can't talk back to you. The best it could do is maybe bite you or perhaps run away. But I want to get your thoughts on the next thing that Lewis says. Dogs are better for this purpose than cats. A monkey, I am told, is best of all. Who told him that a monkey made the best pet? Oh, wow. I got no idea on that. And this is not long after he wrote um, He wrote Shift. You know, he, he created the, the ape um, shift in the last battle. And so I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly sure exactly where he was going with all of this. I wondered, I wondered the same thing, David. I'm like, how many people really genuinely have monkeys for pets? I mean, I think I felt like he was stretching a, the, the principle that the closer you get to human like behavior without actually having the speaking back to you in theory, the best you're getting to affection like a human 
without that speaking thing you mentioned, but I was kind of like, eh, I'd rather have a dog than a monkey. Okay, well, I'm just going to call the scholars out there. We need to answer this. Who was it that told T.S. Lewis he needs to get a pet monkey? <laughs> well, and I think that maybe because the dog has more kind of natural affection than a cat and a monkey would probably be even more affectionate and more human-like and could maybe hold up a mirror um, uh, to us a little bit better. I'm not sure. That's a good idea. I wonder if Aaron Smildy has anything on this. With the risk of alienating all of us, um, can you go, David, Andrew, uh, dog person or cat person? Dog. Yes. Uh, that does, nope. My wife's allergic, that. and so we'll never we'll never have pets. Um, she informed me that we could have dogs, but I'd have to clean up every single one of the mess uh, messes, and so I'm like, okay, well, we'll just appreciate dogs from the far. Um, I told Marie <laughs> we could either have a dog or a baby. <laughs> and she turned out to be actually pregnant when we had that conversation so oh, it was answered gosh. for us i think i like uh I, well it reminds me of of lewis and arthur talking about weather and lewis liked good weather but arthur just liked weather and so i think that one of the ways that one can approach it is i just like whatever will i i like whatever will take me out of myself he famously in experiment and criticism said when he says my own eyes are not enough for me, he would say he would he said something like I would give uh, a great deal indeed to uh, understand all of the olfactory information presented to the average dog's nose, right? Um, to see things from another perspective can be valuable. Valuable. What about you, Matt? Dog, hands down. I don't actually really like cats that much. Okay, well, I'm I'm waving a flag for cats, listeners, and <laughs> and I'm fully in favor of cats, even in their scorn for us as uh, as their servants. But um, I'm I'm fully in favor. So please let us not you know, run afoul of the cat crew. <laughs> I think it's very clear why the ancient Egyptians worshipped cats. It's basically because cats put off that vibe that they should be worshipped. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that dogs are meant to be uh, best for this, because uh, the first two major examples I could think of of pampered pets were dogs. Uh, Tricky Woo uh, from All Creatures Great and Small and Bruiser Woods from the movie Legally Bond. Well, and I don't think cats care about our worship. <laughs> they just receive it as their due. Exactly. I think I bonded with someone who became a girlfriend over the fact that I actually enjoy Legally Blonde, the movie. I think that was a single reason when she decided to say yes to going out with me. <laughs> and we're going to pass over that without comment. <laughs> uh, because likewise, at the end of the section, Lewis says that those people who say that they prefer pets to people should uh, examine themselves. Mm, there we are with motives again. Now, as Jack begins to draw the chapter to a close... He wants to reiterate that if we live lives without affection, we've got a real problem. He says uh, that it's responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. Hmm. Would hmm. you guys agree with that? Is that fair? That's an echo of surprise by joy, right? Um, with the death of my mother, all settled happiness disappeared from my, my life. It settled uh, like a continent, like Atlantis beneath the sea. And so, gosh... From my own experience, having not been really around my family much as an adult, um, hard for me to say, but then to be around my wife's family uh, all the time, you can see that there's a lot of real positive feedback in all of those relationships, and not just the individual relationships, but the fact that those relationships 
go on for a long time, right? The slow maturing of old jokes, this kind of familiarity of not needing to explain things. My poor wife, she moved away from Florida to Texas with me. All of her family stayed behind and she married somebody who doesn't speak her language like every other member of her family does. Poor thing. Yes and no. Similar to Andrew. Uh, I guess I would say I probably didn't grow up in a household math massively smothering in it. And then I guess I'm more of an independent type spirit uh, individual. And so I wouldn't say I experience mass amount of affections, but I would say I'm quite happy still. Uh, but at the same time, I have witnessed exactly what Andrew described those households with it. And I think there's, I don't know if I would say another level of happiness or just a different type of happiness, but I have witnessed probably what that is. But I don't think without it, you can't experience happiness. Um, I just can't quite decide yet if it's another level and it's just a diminished amount without it or it's just a different type. But So Matt, you regularly get together with friends in Chicago, right? Yeah. Um, the the piece of that enjoyment where it's the old gang all over again, where you're not discussing the things that you love, but you're just enjoying the fact that you've been doing this for years, that's affection. And that's a mm -hmm. piece of that happiness that you experience with your friends. And so um, I think it's important to kind of keep in mind that these, you know, that these loves kind of cross over and they, you know, and they help each other out. Um, and so that piece of, hey, I'm with the old gang uh, is, is part of the, the, the pleasure that you have from those friendships, I imagine. Mm, that was what I was yeah. going to say. Even in my relationship with Marie, much of it is affection. Like there's friendship and eros mixed in there. But in the day-to-day, -day, much of it is just simply affection. So I, I would agree with Lois here. I would say that we often fail to recognize it, and that's just partly due to the nature of affection. It goes unnoticed. But I would definitely say that it's true, because it's when it's gone, that's when you miss it. Also, if anyone is near Matt, please give him a hug. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let me also toss in here the irritations that we have with those with whom we are affectionate. Um, and that applies to people in our workplace, people in our school, you know, people that we are just associated with by happenstance. Affection is something that you're kind of born into, you didn't choose, like you're born into a family. Those irritations are the opposite of what could be a very deliberate act of love, right? And so those people who you are very familiar with who really get on your nerves, every time they get on your nerves, it's an invitation to go out of yourself towards the other and be loving and gracious towards them, all the more when they don't recognize it. You don't need to be appreciated for the fact that you are loving them or at least not begrudging them. And so uh, the, the, the kind of hitches in affection have their as their opposite an opportunity to call on God's love in order to love the people that we live with who sometimes frankly just bug us. I'm sure that that Marie gets bugged by David all the time. No, no, I check with her regularly. She says I'm perfect. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Jack says he wants to respond to a critic. Uh, who reads this chapter and says, of course, of course, things do happen. Selfish or neurotic people can twist anything, even love, into some sort of misery or exploitation. But why stress these marginal cases? A little common sense, a little give and take, prevents this occurrence among decent people. And Lewis admits that there do exist pathological conditions which make the temptation to these sorts of distortions much more potent. 
He says, fine, send those people to the doctor. But he thinks that everyone is tempted to these distortions simply by being a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, namely a, a fallen human creature. He says, it's not a disease, but a sin. Mm. And this is our natural state. And he contrasts this with Christ. And he says, well, you know, he's, he's not what people would consider the well-adjusted citizen because they claimed he was possessed and then they nailed him to a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for ourselves in, in combating this, uh, this is what you alluded to earlier. He recommends spiritual direction. Do you have any other suggestions as to what we can do to uh, not be tempted down this road of distorted gift love? I think this goes back to, I, I mentioned this in, in Mere Christianity. Lewis did this a lot. And I appreciate it because it's almost like it goes without being said. But I always felt the need to say it in Mere Christianity. I do here too. Grace, divine love, relationship with Christ. And Lewis always gives, if you want to forgive, start small and start at home. He always gives very practical advice. And I remember in that exact episode, I was like, that he's spot on with that. And wake up every morning and pray for whoever you're trying to forgive and ask that God provides that grace. And I don't think it's because Lewis doesn't think that. It's just because in his mind is probably like, yeah, of course, idiot. <laughs> That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would just say that, bring Christ into it. And the thing that I have learned in my life is uh, the times when I bring him in in a really genuine way and allow that divine life to transform me from the inside out, it just sort of leads to miraculous, beautiful things. Mm. T.S. Eliot talks about the awful daring of the moment's surrender. And uh, Martin Luther King speaks of the fierce urgency of now. If we spend much of our lives in affection or storgy relationships, um, the longer we rub along with people, the more they're going to rub us the wrong way. And that's where the enemy is going to try to get those little pinpricks in and drive little wedges in, which after the course of a long time, um, those little wedges will turn into full-blown hatreds. Um, but the seeds of them are there in even the little daily moments. And so um, that's why I come back to that I think it's the hardest thing our Lord said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Sometimes even what we can do is just prepare ourselves that those people with whom we are familiar are going to irritate us. Let me start saving up soft-heartedness towards them. Let me plan in advance that somebody I'm going to find somebody irritating um, and like he says in screw tape, let me, let me also realize that I'm, pr- if I'm irritated, somebody else is probably irritated at me as well. And so let, let me prepare for, uh, to forgive and to ask forgiveness for those things and realize that I'm probably as irritating, if not more so than others. There's also a tool that I learned, um, from, from recovery communities. Um, and I'm sure it's not exclusive to that, but it's halt when I'm hungry angry, lonely, or tired, I should stop, attend to those needs, and then relate to other people. Because very often I find that if I'm snappish with my wife, it's usually because it's not something that she has done, but something that, some kind of deficit that I'm working from. And so paying attention to to those things can, can go a long way, I think. And if your wife snaps at you, always have a chocolate bar on hand, give it to her. Let her eat it and then try and carry on the conversation. (laughs) I can picture you doing that, David. I love it. Uh, The only thing I'd add to that is really what we mentioned earlier, the litmus test. Ask ourselves, am I happy to see other people blessed or do I have to be the person doing that? 
If it has to be me, then I need to examine my motives. Now, Lewis actually says that the person making this kind of objection is actually communicating the very thing that he himself has been trying to say throughout. And this is our course of the week. Affection produces happiness if and only if there is common sense and give and take and decency. In other words, only if something more or other than affection is added. The mere feeling is not enough. Mm-hmm. Would you guys like to unpack that? What does he mean? Yeah, I think at the most divine level, let's just start real big here out of with the big guns, bazooka. Love when infused with divine love is made more right. And so affection infused with Christ, uh, with divine love, allows affection to be its best self. Now, I don't think we need to go that far because in here he just talks about also affection with a little bit of almost like will, you know, decency, intelligence, being informed, being slightly informed, conscious, you know, those kind of things is enough to keep affection in check. You know, if you're just, it's almost like when people develop their amygdala first, which is their pleasure seeking part of their brain uh, from like 18 to 20. And then they decide to develop their uh, prefrontal cortex, which keeps their amygdala in check. I feel like the amygdala is like the natural instinct, the affection, and then the prefrontal cortex is a decency. Now, if you just bring those two together, you can keep everything in check. But if you have one without the other, you're going to be like a college student going crazy. Well, I totally agree. Um, and there's also the second law, as long as we're getting all sciency, that's there's the second law of ther- thermodynamics. You know, everything is wearing down. It's 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 entropy. It's everything will die. Everything will weaken and die. That's the nature of the universe. And so knowing that I can go on pure affection for a while, but then that's going to kind of chug its way out. I need to add to affection the decision, which is uh, decision love, which is agape. And we'll get to that in the last chapter. It's kind of like, I, it may not be a bad example, but if you've ever taken a church trip or a, you know, a school trip and during this, you know, mission trip or whatever, go to camp, you develop with these people a bond, you have certain phrases that you use and jokes and all the rest. And then once you get back from that context, it's really kind of hard to pull those things back together. You can never really have that closeness that you had because it was created by this other situation. And so that affection of that little group on the, you know, on the bus singing songs or playing pranks or whatever is naturally going to diminish. First of all, I think the good thing is to recognize that affection is supposed to diminish. It's supposed to run out. Um, and then it needs some supplements from some other love, just trying to conjure those feelings again, or even getting back on the bus and going to camp the next year, it's still not quite the same. So acknowledging that it'll wear out and then acknowledging that it needs to be supplemented, I think is a good way to, to, to realize it. And that's in some ways where real love, if you will, starts to take place. It's when I decide to love in spite of a, a negative situation with somebody with whom I am in an affectionate relationship or an erotic relationship, you know, a romantic relationship or, or a friendship. Um, the natural does all die and they're supposed to because they're natural, but death is the point right before resurrection takes place, but it takes supernatural power. So realizing God's dynamic in our natural loves, and this is part of why I love this book so much. It really helped manage my expectations of my relationships and realize that I need God in all of those loves and none of those loves, no matter what the pop songs and the Hallmark movies say, none of those loves are going to be enough. Um, I think it's in this book that, uh, 
that he talks about a reviewer of William Morris's poems, Love is Enough. And he said that the reviewer very succinctly said, it isn't. Uh, or the natural loves are not enough. And so I think it points to the need of something other, which is fundamentally God. David, do you ever, when we're going through these books much more in depth, think back to our video series that we made and think about how we would have done the videos so much better if we knew what we knew now that we've unpacked so much of Lewis's works. Like, did, remember we did that love or, or that video where we started out, love is all you need or something uh, with the Beatles. And I'm just thinking through, man, we, we've just learned, I guess it's a long way of saying, we've learned so much since we've unpacked these in the last three years. Sure, but the highest doesn't stand without the lowest. And that was us at our lowest. <laughs> now, you guys spoke about um, your answers were very heavenly. Reading what Lewis says, I was actually much more down to earth, so, so to speak, because I would simply describe as what affection needs is virtue. I mean, if you consider the cardinal virtues of prudence, well, that's the common sense that Lewis mentions. Justice is basically another term for give and take. Temperance is roughly decency, and you need fortitude in order to do all of these things when you're tempted to give in and just be selfish. So I, I would think I would start with, we need virtue. Now, how we get that is another question. I was going to say, were you going to get the virtue without the divine? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Lewis talks about the development of virtue, and he says that an action repeated will become a habit. And a habit repeated will become a virtue. It will become a characteristic of us. And so we absolutely need to kind of do things. And then he also says, I love that you brought up the virtues, David. That's just perfect. Um, because it circles back to the heart of our book. And that's a pun intended. Because he says that courage is um, all is that the strength that happens at all of the virtues at their testing point. Um, mm -hmm. And so courage is kind of the heart of all of that. Um, and courage, of course, comes from the word corde, which means the heart. And fundamentally, in order to practice the virtues, what we need is heart or love. And that's deliberate, divine, charity love that is concerned for the other. And so, yeah, we need to develop these habits and patterns of virtue. Um, and we need to con continually come back to the great commandment to love one another. And that's hard, hard to do. And it's almost as if there's a devil trying to keep us from any, any kind of way of softening our hearts or loving deliberately, especially when the situation is hard. I tend to let myself off the hook when, uh, when I do something hard-hearted. And that's what Lewis says. Uh, there needs to be the continual intervention of a far higher sort of love than affection. If we try and live by affection alone, it will go bad on us. So if you'll forgive me for mixing Greek and Latin, Lewis rejects sola storgi. We can't live by affection alone. But he then ends the chapter by saying that we rarely recognize how badly affection can be distorted. And he asks whether Mrs. Fidget was actually really completely aware of how terrible she was. And he says, probably. Uh, and she just continued her reign of terror because she didn't want to accept the fact that she was no longer needed. And she even used her suffering as proof that she loved. Whenever her family would do something that would wound her, it's very easy to do, she would use this as a proof as to how much she loved them. And Lewis says that if someone doesn't know these pleasures, the pleasures of nursing a grievance, well, that person is either a saint or a liar. And he ends by quoting the Roman poet Catullus, who said, I love and hate. And Jack says that Mrs. Fidget's love had an awful lot of hate in it, and the other loves also carry seeds of hate within them. 
But look at even what he says, because um, she suffered, and suffering is at the heart of our redemption, right? Suffering is at the heart of Christ's mission. And so even that suffering that she does on behalf of others, that could so easily be turned into a divine love. She could make it an offering. Oh Lord, I'm making this dinner for them time after time, but I'm mostly doing it not for them, but for you. And what I'm hoping to do is serve you a hot meal. And if she's trying to serve the Lord by serving people, then she could see through that, you know, once she abandons the selfishness, she can see through her love and really realize what it's for. And that if she were ever corrected, hey, we'd rather have cold lunch, then she wouldn't be offended because she's like, hey, I'm trying to serve the Lord in these people that are before me. Great. Let me give them better what they can have. And so it's this constant turning, turning from self. And so I think that this is, yeah, this is part of why I love this book so much. And this is the last line of the chapter. If affection is made the absolute sovereign of a human life, the seeds will germinate. Love, having become a god, becomes a demon. Oh, I wonder if that's the main theme of his book. Well, and I think that it's also recognizing the, de- the, the potential seeds of the demonic in our own selves, listeners, and my co-hosts. Soften your heart. Say yes, not no this week. Be prepared to... Say yes to others, even when they inconvenience you. I had a friend, and she she said that for years she would get so angry when somebody would cut her off that she would get in the next lane and go over and then cut them off and then glare at them as if that glare was going to produce some redemptive change in the stranger's driving habits until she realized that that was all just this this aching ball of need, and she felt like she wasn't being appreciated. And when she realized that that was a hard issue in her, she said, I started driving in the middle lane. And then when somebody was about to come over, I started slowing down and waving them over as a gift. And uh, she may have arrived at her, at her destination a few minutes later, but she did it with a much calmer heart. Those little irritations are where Screwtape wants to, wants to work, but it's where we can turn those demons into servants of God. And that's, I think, going to be my challenge to us all this week. And watch, I'm going to probably get irritated for the next three hours at home after we get done with this. Well, I hear the last call bell here at the Trout Pub. This Thursday. Oh, yeah, you caught that, Andrew. Yeah, you like that. You like that. This Thursday, since affection. (laughs) This Thursday. Since affection is rooted in family affection, David has interviewed Dr. Don W. King about Jack's brother, Major Warren Lewis. This interview will be released on Thursday. Next Tuesday, we're not going to be going through any of Lewis's texts. Instead, we're going to be talking to people in our lives with whom we share story love. Visit our revamped website. David put a lot of work into that, guys. Uh, it's much more of a site designed to house content. And so if you've enjoyed our content and you've come to this recently, you can find a lot of old historical interviews, particularly. That was a powerful uh, focus of this new website. We have such rich interviews with incredible guests that have graciously come on. So check that out and uh, definitely check out the YouTube channel because we have continuing the Skype sessions. If you've been with us for a while, you're familiar with those, but we have started our first common room video where the three of us chatted for about a half hour and we are going to continue those. And despite some of the technical difficulties, we did get very, very positive feedback and they're only going to get better. 
I just want to jump in and say um, I'm envious of David uh, interviewing Don King. Don's a friend and a brilliant scholar, and I encourage you all to uh, to listen to that interview. Don is a sweet, affectionate, soft-spoken, uh, rigorous scholar. He knows more about Lewis's poetry than anybody in the world. He probably knows more about Joy Davidman than anybody in the world. And now that he's focused his attention on on, on Warney, I think we're going to have great revelation. He's also quite a fan of Chuck Taylor uh, tennis shoes. I see those posted on his Facebook. But Don is just a prince of a man and a, a real gift to the Lewis community. His collected letters or collected poems uh, his critical edition of the collected poems is a service that he has done that will far outlive him. So, uh, so just a plug to listen to that interview with Don. And I want to call attention as well. We're going to be doing another watch watch party. And so, uh, for new listeners here for this season, we have a Patreon that is so helpful that all our supporters it allows us to cover the cost of the production of this content and ensure it's high quality. And so, we like to do these things for our supporters, and we have a lot of these from watch parties to Tease with Tumness and a bunch of other uh, different things. And so this one is going to be a documentary about Lewis Tolkien and McDonald, the fantasy makers. So uh, keep an eye out for that in the newsletter. If you're not a Patreon supporter, it would be just delightful to have you a part of that in the Slack community. So go over to uh, patreon.com slash pints with Jack. And speaking of Patreon, we want to thank all of our top tier supporters, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for indulging us and for your great feedback and for journeying along this great chapter together. And join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>